Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and those that are kept for Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you. He desired to write, he says in verse 3, of the common salvation, but it was necessary for him to write to encourage the Christians to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude opens his short epistle by acknowledging three things. He says that he is a brother, he is a servant, and he also is a fellow Christian. Jude, this Jude that wrote this short epistle, is the earthly brother of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew 13 and verse 55. But when he opens this letter, he mentions nothing about his earthly kinship with Jesus. Instead, he focuses his attention and his focus on those things that he has in common with those people to whom he's writing. He focuses his attention on their commonality in Jesus Christ. In just 25 verses, this brief epistle, one chapter book known to us as the book of Jude is one of the most challenging, dark and gloomy books in all of the New Testament. Now, don't let that discourage us. The tone that Jude takes as he starts this letter is necessary. And while none of us likes to be the bearer of bad news, we always appreciate those that love us enough to tell us the bad news for our sake and for our benefit. And that's Jude's posture here. Two researchers from the University of California set out on a study to try and answer the age old question. I have good news and bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? What they found is the people that are receiving the news rather hear the bad news first. But the people that are delivering the news like to give the good news first. And then if they have the opportunity to kind of sneak in the bad news. But what they found out is that's a bad idea. Because sometimes the person that merely delivers the good news first and plans on sneaking in the bad news afterward may water it down or not deliver it at all. And so people want to know the truth and we should give it to them. Jude didn't see their research. Neither did he ask his readers which ones they preferred. He, inspired by the spirit of God, gives us what we need to hear. There are some interesting things about Jude's epistle. In the first place, we don't know who Jude is writing to. Would you notice verse one? He says that they are called, that they are kept, and that they're beloved of God, but he doesn't mention any location or any place. And that's interesting. A second thing is, the book of Jude parallels almost exactly 2 Peter chapter 2, which says to us that the problems that Jude's readers were facing were being faced by other people in other places. If you just open up your Bible on another occasion and look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude, they almost mirror each other word for word and thought for thought. Whatever Jude was addressing, so was Peter as he wrote his second epistle. And the third interesting thing about this book is the idea that we don't really know what false doctrine Jude was writing to counteract, though we believe it probably is some early seeds of Gnosticism. He just attacks false teaching, but he doesn't really tell us what exactly that false teaching is. And this all matters for us. The Holy Spirit says to us in this book, it doesn't matter where you are. There will always be people that teach things contrary to the New Testament. It doesn't matter what they teach or what exactly the specific error is. You always handle it the same way. And so Jude in his book teaches Christians. How do we deal with false teachers? They needed it in the first century, and we need this lesson today. You know, we might be tempted to be lulled to sleep spiritually and think, you know, no one would ever corrupt the message of Christianity for their own purposes and to deceive other people. But we would be mistaken. In our politically correct culture, we might buy into the lie that says, you know, who am I to correct anybody? What they believe is their business and what I believe is my business. But we would again be mistaken. 
Jude says to us, we must not only know the truth ourselves, but we must be ready to defend it and contend against those who would teach otherwise. And so in the first 16 verses, my half of the sermon, we're going to look at what Jude says about how Christians should deal with false teachers. He wanted to write to them about the common salvation, but he needed to write for them, to them to earnestly contend for the faith. And in our ongoing struggle with religious error, there are four things from the first 16 verses of Jude that we need to appreciate as we deal with individuals who teach false doctrine. Number one, Jude says in verses three and four, contend against the corruptors. In verse three, right after he says he wanted to write to them about the common salvation, he says, I wrote instead for you to earnestly contend for those for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude says, stand up for what you believe in verse three. Now, this word contends is only used here in the New Testament in its entirety. But it's a word that means to exert effort in order to defend a cause or to exert effort in something that you're engaging in. Sometimes it was used in athletic competition. And Jews point is give it everything you have as you earnestly contend for the faith. Don't let verse three slip by you. Jude says contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered. That means Christianity has not changed. It will not change. It doesn't need to be updated or to be revamped. It's just the truth. When Jude says it's been once for all delivered, that means that biblical Christianity goes back to the apostles who gave it in the first century. Matthew 16 and verse 19. Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. When he says it's the faith that's been once for all delivered, it means the faith that we believe and the faith that we practice has been delivered to us. But it's not determined by us. We don't get to make up what we believe. We've merely received what's been given to us by God. Jude says it's been once for all time given. That means that there's nothing new coming. There's no more revelation that God's revealing to other people to sort of go in the back as an appendix to Revelation 22. This is it. And it's the faith delivered for all the saints. That means there isn't a Catholic version of Christianity or a Baptist version or a Presbyterian version or even a Church of Christ version. According to the New Testament, it's just Christianity. Ephesians 4 and verse 5, Paul says there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And Jude says if you're a Christian, you stand up for it and contend for it against the corruptors. Notice verse 4. Certain individuals had crept in unaware and they started to teach things contrary to this. They turned the grace of God, the ESV says, into a, a sort of licentiousness or a lewdness or into sensuality. They corrupted the grace of God. And Jude says you stand up for what's right. Anytime anybody tells you that you can behave less like Jesus and still have God's approval, mark this down. Anytime anybody says you can behave less like Jesus and still have God's approval, you are hearing false doctrine. Jude says they've turned the grace of God into something that it's not. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Titus 2, 11 and 12. And Jude says these false teachers that come in and says something else and his readers had a responsibility, just like we do, to stand up and fight back against it. With the recent research that's gone on about all of the head injuries that are involved in football and other contact sports, there's been a sort of reluctance on the part of many parents and others to say, maybe the risk is not worth it. Maybe kids should sort of stay out of contact sports. Jude says Christianity is a contact sport. And there's going to be a collision between the truth and error. And you and I don't get to decide whether or not we're going to be on the sidelines or engaged in the battle. Christianity is a fight and we have to engage in it. 
Second Corinthians 10, three through five, Paul would say, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we desire to bring every thought into obedience to Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 10, three through five. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And as these individuals had crept in and said, you know what? The grace of God says you can behave however you want. Jude says, contend for the faith. You didn't learn that. You weren't taught that when you obeyed the gospel. And it's not true. Before we move on to number two, let me just give you a short list of things to keep in mind as we contend against those who sometimes corrupt the faith that we practice. Number one. Never defend Jesus by behaving unlike Jesus. So sometimes a person says, I'm defending the faith and they may behave in a rude or unchrist like way. Never defend Jesus while behaving unlike him. Second Timothy two, 24 to 26. Number two, in contending against corruptors, know what you believe and why you believe it. John eight thirty one and 32, Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's not enough to know where they're wrong. You've got to know where God is right. Number three, always seek to win a soul and not merely an argument. God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. First Timothy two and verse four. He desires all men to come to repentance. Second Peter three and verse nine. And that has to be our desire as well. Number four, as we contend against corruptors, keep this idea in mind. Do not be silent for fear of being misunderstood. Paul says, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. Philippians one and verse seven. And sometimes we've thought about standing up for what's right. We've thought about defending New Testament Christianity. But we say, I don't want to be viewed as a bigot. I don't want to be viewed as dogmatic. And so we get muzzled. But we don't have God's permission to do it. And then in the fifth place, if we're going to contend against corruptors, love the truth and refuse to compromise it. Proverbs 23, 23, Solomon says, buy the truth and refuse to sell it and wisdom and instruction and knowledge. Jude says, when dealing with false teachers, stand up against error and contend against corruptors. Now, here's number two. In Jude verses five through seven, he says, carefully examine the past. He says, you should appreciate that there have been other people like this before. Notice verse five. And you know about them. He mentions three different groups of people who fail because they didn't stay in line with what God had taught or what God wanted for them. In verse five, he mentions those that have come out of Egypt, the Israelites. He says the Lord led them out of Egypt, but they failed because of their unbelief. Hebrews three, 16 through 19. And then in verse six, he mentions the angels who left their former habitation and they are now punished and cast down and reserved in chains of dark gloom and punishment. And then in verse seven, he mentions those in Sodom and Gomorrah who went after strange flesh and are set forth for an example, suffering eternal fire and vengeance. Jude mentions these three groups of people to say this could happen to you if you follow in the steps of these false teachers. The punishment that was theirs could be yours. And so be sure to avoid error because it always leads to punishment. It always leads to destruction. It always leads to being in opposition to God. You know, the three people that the three groups that you mentioned here, you might say they were in rather privileged states. In verse five, he mentions the children of Israel. You think about them being God's chosen people coming out of Egypt, but they fail because of their unbelief. He mentions in verse six, the angels who had a former habitation. They were in the dwelling place of God. But second Peter two and verse four says God cast them down because of their sin and transgression. 
And then in verse 7, he mentions those that were in the same territory as Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and the punishment that was theirs. His desire for us is not merely to note these historical references, but as individuals who read these words, we should raise our heads from the page with this one thought in mind. This could happen to me. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. First Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Beware of following false teachers because it could lead to your ruin. False teachers always meet their ruin. Error always leads one away from God. It's always costly. And you want his readers to know it. Sometimes you go to the doctor to get a shot or get your blood drawn. And the person that's about to administer the blow says you won't feel a thing. And I always wonder why preface it with those words. You won't feel a thing. This won't hurt. Jude says, you know, false teachers may be saying that same thing. It's just a minor deviation. You won't feel a thing. It'll be just like what they taught you, but they'll just be. God doesn't care about those details. And you can hear the lisp of the serpent as they tell that lie. You will not surely die. Genesis three and verse four. Jude says false teaching always hurts. And if you look far enough in the past, you'll see other individuals who fell into that same error and the consequences that were theirs. Hold firmly to the truth that you've once believed and carefully consider the past. Romans 15 and verse four says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And note Old Testament Israel in first Corinthians 10 and verse six and first Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Note their mistakes and how it ended up for them and avoid the same yourself. When we deal with false teachers, mark this down. Jude says, carefully examine the past. George Santayana is a famous philosopher who said these words. We're all familiar with them, though we may not know his name. Those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. And Jude would amen that statement and add this. If you don't want to know the doom of those who have fallen in the past, study their examples and go in the opposite direction. Now, here's number three. In Jude 8 through 13, Jude says, when you deal with false teachers, mark their counterfeit spirituality. In verses 8 through 13, Jude mentions individuals who are lifted up with dreams and with arrogance. They're puffed up. In verses 9 and 10, he mentions an occasion when Michael, the archangel, was arguing with the devil over the body of Moses, but he wouldn't rebuke him. He says, the Lord rebuke you in verse 9, but not these individuals. They're puffed up with arrogance. And in the end, false teachers want to play by their own rules. And Jude says it's going to end bad for them. When we deal with individuals who teach things contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should keep in mind that there is a sort of counterfeit spirituality that comes along with it. Ideas like this. I know the truth and only the people that follow me will truly know it. Or as if they have some sort of corner market on the things that God would have us to know. And we have to follow in their footsteps in order to get it. Jude says, if you're in Jesus Christ, you have all of the spirituality that you will ever need. And stick with that. These individuals reject authority. And as a result, they've cast themselves away from God Almighty. Colossians 3.17 says we're to submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. And false teachers have no interest in doing that. You know, sometimes people come to us and they say, the Lord told me in a dream. Or God wanted me to tell you X, Y, and Z. And Jude says, don't fall for it. If God wanted to tell you something, it's written in the pages of inspiration between Genesis and Revelation. And anything in addition to that, anything that would supplement that, would lead you further away from him. There is no getting close to God while being pulled further away from his word. And so, Jude says, mark these individuals. He mentions three groups of folks in verse 11. Jude likes to think in threes. He mentions Cain, he mentions Korah, and he mentions Balaam. If you think about these men, they were all sort of spiritual, weren't they? Cain was a worshiper. 
Except Cain liked to offer up the kind of worship that Cain liked to offer up. And Balaam was a prophet, except for the fact that Balaam, he liked to say the things Balaam wanted to say, Numbers 22 through 25, and not the things commanded by God. And Korah was a Levitical assistant to the priest, but he wasn't content with the station that God gave him. He wanted the entire high priesthood of Aaron. You see, these three individuals had just enough spirituality to make them sick, but not enough to make them submit to Almighty God. And Jude says, don't follow in their footsteps. If you stay up late, late enough at night, there'll be somebody that'll come on TV and they promise you, if you send them in just the right amount of money, God will love you like never before. And if you buy just the right spiritual water from them and drink it, all of your problems are going to be removed and your life is going to be better. False teaching always costs us, maybe not monetarily, but it costs us in our time. The time we could be devoting to God, we sometimes surrender to the wrong things. And Jude says, I want you to hold firm to the truth and not do that. The last thing when dealing with false teachers from Jude 14 through 16, he says conviction and judgment are coming. In verses 14 through 16, Jude mentions an occasion with an Old Testament character named Enoch. Now, we don't have this in the book of Genesis, but because Jude is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we should not be surprised that he knows some things that we don't. And so he tells us that Enoch prophesied that the Lord was coming with 10,000 of his holy ones and to execute judgment on these individuals that teach false doctrine. This tells us that the false teaching in Jude's day and in our day goes all the way back to Genesis chapter five. And there have always been people that teach things contrary to what God would have us to believe. And the sadder news is there have always been people who would believe them. Enoch is the man that we know as the deathless one. He walked with God and he was not because God took him. Genesis five and verse twenty four. He did not see death, but he writes about the destruction, the ruin and the death of those who do oppose God. You see, Jude lifts up Enoch as an example of someone who in his day preached the truth, stood for righteousness and opposed error and was ultimately taken with God and uses him as an example to say you do the same thing. And just like he walked with God and God took him, God will do the same thing with us. False teachers will meet their ruin. Second Peter two and verse one. There were false teachers in their day. There'll be false teachers among you who will bring on themselves. Peter says swift destruction. And so he says to us through Enoch, God will come with his holy ones. In verses 15 and 16 of the book of Jude, he uses the word ungodly four times. And isn't that the point? In the end, all false teaching is ungodly. It makes us less like God and more like the adversary. Jude says that in the end, I want you to be God's people and not go in the way of ungodliness. Be the people that mirror his image and not your own. These false teachers will meet their end and will meet their ruin. But you'll be ultimately saved by God. In the first 16 verses of the book of Jude, he gives us the bad news. He doesn't ask us which one we want first. He just gives us ultimately what we need. But then in verses 17 through 25, Jude has something to say to us about what we should do with ourselves and not so much as what's going on on the outside. Contend against false teachers, but remember to glorify God in the process. Brother Neil, teach us about the rest. There was a woman that had the reputation of always being able to say something good about just about anybody, no matter how worthless they may have seemed to be. Some, one day somebody said, well, can you say something good about the devil? She said, well, he's always on the job. Now, the devil is always on the job, and it seems like there's no let up. In fact, it seems like he's trying harder now than he ever has. It seems like the devil and his team is winning, and it seems like sometimes it's a blowout. 
I think it was that way in Jude's day, and that's why, even though it appears originally that he was going to write this beautiful letter about the blessings of salvation, he found it necessary to change course. There was this urgent appeal to the hearts of these Christians to earnestly contend for the faith, this objective standard of teaching of Scripture. And he deals with the content of the faith. And he deals with the character of the faith. And the concerns of the faith. And the challengers to the faith. And that's essentially what we've just seen in the first 16 verses. And if you want to summarize it, what he's saying is, what you need to remember is that the world has always been the world. But the rest of the letter is that God has always intended the church to be different. God's people to be different from the world. And so what you'll find is there's a beautiful changing point, there's a pivot point in this letter that is at verse 17. And in this section where he's making this transition from the world to the Christians that he's writing to, you'll notice that he says, but you, beloved. This is how it is for these ungodly ones that I've just talked about, but I want you to know that it's different for you. And so as he settles in, he wants to give confidence and assurance. And he does so, it seems to me, in verse 17 through 25, in the last third of this letter, by encouraging these Christians about the salvation that they share. Do you remember back how uh, Hiram showed us that he began that letter? You are kept by God. You are loved by Christ. Grace, mercy, and love are yours in abundance. There are some things I want you as Christians to remember that will help you. When you face the pressures of the world, what will help us to keep on going when it seems like the other side has all the power, all the momentum, and they seem to be winning? Will you notice with me the three things he tells us that will help us to escape that influence and that teaching? The first thing that he says is remember the words of the apostles. Now, even though he's shifting his focus, he doesn't want them to get away from what he said about these individuals. He is encouraging them to remember and never forget what it is that God has said about what the end result is going to be for these others. They're telling you that this is a great way to live, that it's going to deliver you to give you a better life than you have, but it's not. You know, Hiram rightly pointed out that Jude was reminiscent of Second Peter, especially it lines up in chapter 2. But I find it interesting that in Second Peter chapter 1 and in Second Peter chapter 3, he bookends what he says in chapter 2 by saying, Do you know why I'm writing you this second letter? It's not the first letter that Peter had written. But he says, in the second letter, I am writing you, notice, so that I can remind you, so that you will be reminded. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 13. And he says, I write this second epistle to you in which I refresh your memory. And I want you to remember the words of the prophets and the words of your apostles. No matter how things move along in society, where we find ourselves, what century it is, what part of the world it is, there are some things we're going to have to continually study and restudy and make sure that we don't neglect. You know, if you have been in the body of Christ for some period of time, there are certain subjects I hope that you've heard. And what can happen to us if we don't consider the plight of new Christians and non-Christians and our young people that are growing up is we can say, I've heard this before. 
I've heard these sermons on the necessity of baptism. I have heard about the singular and the undenominational nature of the church. I've heard what Scripture says about the judgment. But all the time, there are new people coming into the body of Christ. I think about how things are at Lehman Avenue. And God is blessing us with babes in Christ who are new to the faith of our Lord and Savior. And we have young people who are coming into awareness all the time. And so Peter is... Telling, I mean, rather, Jude is telling us what Peter is telling us, what Scripture is telling us, and that is we can never forget what Scripture says. Don't ever get too far away from that. Ever since I was a little boy, I've heard people say that apostasy is less than one generation away, and that's true. It was that way in the period of the judges. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, when Joshua and all the elders with him passed away, there arose another generation that did not know God or remember the things that God had done. So Jude is talking to Christians and he's saying, look, as you've noticed this teaching that you're to avoid, I want you to remember what the apostles and the prophets have said. That's the one thing that can help you in this salvation that you share. But then there's the second thing that he says, and that's found for us in verse 20 and 21. He says, I want you to keep your heart in Scripture, but then I want you to keep yourself in the love of God. Now, as Hiram pointed out, there are several threes in the book of Jude. And to keep yourself in the love of God, Jude points to three things. What are three things that we are going to do to keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, the first thing he says is that we are going to remember the word that was spoken. We are going to keep ourselves in the word of God. We're going to continue to deeply study God's word. Peter makes a contrast. He talks about those who fall away from Christ and those who grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Here is something that will help us to stay faithful to our Lord as the children of God and something that we can encourage each other in. And that is stay dedicated, stay serious in your study of the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that if you read the Bible every day that that's automatic insulation and you won't fall away from Christ. But if you are dedicated and wholeheartedly devoted in your study to God and you try your hardest to devote to Him through His Word, it's going to be a lot harder for you to fall away from God. And and so Jude focuses on this strength and this growth that comes. You keep yourself in the love of God by staying in His Word, but you also do so by praying in the Holy Spirit. You disconnect from prayer. You distance yourself from God. What prayer does for us constantly is that it reminds us of how much we depend on God for everything. In the good days, when everything seems to be going our way and we're not really facing anything significant, we can forget how much we need God. Be faithful when things are going well in your life. Be faithful in prayer. And certainly when the valleys are steep, remember God in prayer. Then he also says, if you're going to keep yourself in the love of God, not only do you stay faithful in your study of God's Word and pray in the Holy Spirit, but you're going to anxiously await the mercy at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There was a a parachutist by the name of Rod Milner in Australia. And some years ago, he was ready and he was got sponsors lined up to support him in this. He was going to take a hot air balloon to the edge of outer space And he was going to be the first to parachute from there 130,000 feet back down to the ground. And as he was being interviewed by the media there in Australia, he said, all the mountains have been climbed, the seas have been done, and so I'm going straight up. 
He had an opportunity to speak to the children in the classrooms of Australia. And in one large school in Perth, he said, my job or my ambition is that I'm just going to go out into space and I'm going to aim for earth and try to hit it. I'm grateful that it was just a bunch of hot air. For all that he said, he he never did it. He chickened out and he became the butt of several jokes and he cost sponsors millions of dollars. C.S. Lewis said, aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. What Judah's been saying is that these ones, these false teachers are telling you to aim for the earth and to pander to your flesh and live for the here and the now. And it's not going to work now and it's going to create an opportunity of eternal fire in the judgment, verse 7. But what you're anxious for as the children of God, you're anxious for eternal life. If you'll hang on and you'll understand what it is that awaits you as the children of God, you have something more wonderful. You hang in there. You resist the message because at the end of this, there is eternal life. There is reward to those who wait for God. Isaiah 40, verse 31, we're familiar with that. We saw it not too many weeks ago. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But think about how often in the New Testament you have this very passage where you have writers of the New Testament saying things like that. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious revealing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 1, 13-15. The Hebrews writer said, Jesus came the first time, we're going to the judgment, he's going to come a second time not to deal with sin, but to come and get those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 9 and verse 28. Peter, again, in 2 Peter chapter 3 says, the world's going to be destroyed. The elements are going to melt with fervent heat. It's all going to be over. But you, according to the promise of God, wait for a new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Jude wants the Christians to be uh, understanding of, of how they handle this salvation they share. And so he says, the first thing you got to do is remember the words of the apostles. And the second thing I want you to do is to keep yourself in your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But there's a third thing that he tells Christians about how we can handle the salvation that we share. And I think it's only fitting that it's a good picture of what Christianity is in the overall. You see, where he starts is your own heart and your own devotional life. And then he talks about your general faithfulness and the influence that you're going to have as you try to live the Christian life. But I want you to notice that in verse 22 and 23, he is showing us that that third element is that you're going to focus on others. To be a Christian who is mindful of the salvation that you share, it's not going to just be about you protecting yourself and making sure that you faithfully overcome. It's going to be about you focusing on others. And it seems, again, Jude looks at three groups. And the first group that he looks at is the doubting. It's it's sad, but it's also important for us to think about the fact that in an assembly of this size, that there are Christians who are struggling with doubt. There are a lot of different things that make us doubt. 
It can be stress, it can be anxiety, it can be depression, it can be sin struggles. Doubt comes from a lot of different directions. And, and what we do with our doubt so often is, is that we hold it in to ourselves and we wrestle with these questions and we don't really reach out and help. But it's a beautiful thing for Jude to show us that God has you and me, if we're not doubting, as the resources that he uses to help those Christians among us who are doubting. So let me say to you this morning, if you are doubting, please don't keep that to yourself. Please find somebody that you trust. I I pray that certainly that's an elder or a preacher or a member that you have a relationship with and share that. And don't worry about feeling shame or being humiliated or being made to feel guilty. We need one another. And this salvation that we share, you think about in the context of Jude's writing, here are these people who are trying to undermine faith, to try to turn grace into something that it's not, and maybe make these ones who are on the fence to begin to fall away from God. And so what we're going to do in our faith is we're going to look for those who are doubting and we're going to help. Please reach out to us if you're doubting. But then he says, there are the erring. They're the ones who are among us, who may find themselves dangling over that fire. And so the picture that Jude gives of the Christian who is walking in the light is you find those ones who maybe are on their way in that direction. And you do so in the way that, that Hiram showed us in that gentleness of the teacher of Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25. But what you want to do is you want to rescue them. There are 37 million Incidents where people call fire departments all across the United States. Did you know that? In any given year. And while there are only just under 2 million actual fire calls in that 37 million, every time a firefighter leaves the firehouse, he is leaving or she is leaving with the mindset of going to save a life. There are 33,000 fire departments in the United States. Actually 30,000 and 330 million And so doing the math, that's 11,000 people for every one fire department in the United States of America. But none of us would feel comfortable living in a community where there wasn't a fire station somewhere nearby. If you were to poll people and ask them, what's the way that you want to die? I don't think there's anybody who would say, I prefer, number one way, if I had to die, I'm going to have to die, how do I do it? I want to burn to death. So God has you and me, spiritually speaking, as firefighters. To help those among us who may be drifting in that direction. That's why Jude has written the letter in this way. And he says in this salvation that we share, we're going to focus on others. We're going to uh, focus on those who are doubting. We're going to focus on those among us who are erring. It would be wonderful that if we take whatever number is here present day, whatever number is on the roll, so to speak, or make up the membership of the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ, wouldn't it be wonderful that if, whatever that number was, that we could say that 100% of that number are going to faithfully endure and upon death, every one of those who are living now in that number are going to be on the Lord's right hand. But statistically speaking, that's probably not the case. That there are those among us who are in a a state where they're heading toward that place. And what Jude says is, I want you, out of your compassion for them, to consider what that means. And to snatch them from that. And then the third uh, category that he mentions after the doubting and the erring are those that we might say are simply the children of God who are lost. Those that Peter would describe in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 22. But he says, what I want you to do is have mercy on them. 
hating even the garment that is stained with the flesh. As much as those false teachers want to harm and to cause the fall of those individuals, I want you to be that dedicated. As much as you hate sin, I want you to love those righteous ones who are overcome by sin so that you can help them to be recovered. You see, we have this salvation that we share. It is so wonderful. It's a blessing. And because of that, there are things that we're going to do in our own personal lives and as we reach out to others. But I love, if you look in your Bible, maybe what it says that those last two verses are is a doxology. This final hymn. And in those two verses, we have three strains of blessed assurance in those two verses. And the bottom line message that's going to help us as we combat the false teachers that we saw in the first part of this letter and as we focus on the salvation that we share is to remember that God is always in control. No matter how it seems, no matter how it looks, that things are going in the religious world, in the greater world at large, God is in control. And in your life as a child of God, will you remember this? God will keep you from falling if it were not for God I could not stand God is able to keep me from falling that means that as I live in this world I can be like Noah and his family in a world that's totally going wrong I can not myself fall I can walk in the light I can live with blessed assurance I can walk with that confidence of 1 John 5.13 of knowing that I am saved because he's able to keep you from falling he's not going to make us not fall if we are intent on going that way but he's also able to make you stand I'll say more about that at the very, very close of this lesson. He'll make you stand. And then he says that God is glorious. He is full of authority. He is the direct contrast of all else. Yeah, it it seems like that the world is, is gaining in its influence and its pressure all the time. Bill Hillman wrote a a book not long ago, but uh, after he wrote the book, he was running, as he often had done, with the bulls of Pamplona, Spain. You ever seen that sport? It's a crazy sport where folks get out in front of those bulls and they try to run and keep from getting uh, uh, injured by them. Well, Bill Hillman, who was somewhat of an expert, he was gored by a 1,500-pound bull. He was gored in the thigh. It missed his femoral artery by a centimeter. Bill Hillman had written a book called How to Run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. It's a book on how not to get gored by a bull. Maybe he was a little bit too overconfident in the writing of that. But when I think about the race that we're running in, we're running from one that the Bible calls a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so we're given instruction to help us. And one of the things that can happen is is that we can think, well, I'm not going to fall. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. But writers like Jude say, Look, here is an external pressure, but here are some internal measures that can help you in the salvation that you share. Focus on yourself and focus on those around you. And encourage them, certainly the lost, but even those among you who are saved, so that we can all stand on the Lord's right hand. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and none of us deserve to be able to stand You know, what all of us deserve is eternal punishment. Sin separates us from God. 
But there's a great reminder in this book that because of what Jesus did for us, we're kept. We're loved. Grace, mercy, and love are ours in abundance. So how is it that we're going to be able to stand in the judgment day? It's going to be because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. This morning, he extends an invitation in the very next book, the last book of the Bible. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that hears say, Come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. Who is this great salvation for? It's for anyone and everyone. Whoever will, who will come to him. Maybe you're ready to do that today. We're ready to help you. You've been studying God's Word. You are convinced that you need to have your sins washed away through baptism. If we can help you with that, we want to do that. If you're a child of God, maybe you're struggling with doubt. Maybe you find yourself erring. Maybe you find yourself spotted with the stains of this world. And you just want all that to to be dealt with. And you want us to encourage you and strengthen you. We would love to do that. You're our family members. Don't bear that burden alone. Don't carry this and not let us help you. If you, as a child of God, need to respond to this invitation, why not right now as we stand and sing?